Our Father, we thank you so much for uh, another Saturday morning together as men. We thank you for the uh, all the men who've uh, prepared the meal for us and uh, the coffee in particular. We thank you for uh, feeding and taking care of our needs. And uh, we pray that as we get into this morning's uh, study, that you would help us to think carefully as men and also to uh, always be thinking and uh, listening, hearing with a view to how we're going to pass this along to others. I pray that you would t help us to take our, our role as men, as leaders and teachers, uh, take that into account with everything that we hear so that we examine everything through the lens of our responsibility and our duty, which is a joy to us that you've given to us. Thank you for uh, the time that we have this morning. Please uh, use this for your glory in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. All right, we have been talking about how God relates to humanity and uh, specifically through this concept of covenant. Um, last week we got into federalism or what we called representative headship. And uh, I'm just going to start out with a question by way of review. Who can tell us what just basically what federalism is about? What is what's the idea of federalism or representative headship? What is that? What's that referring to? Oh, man. <laughs> Cold group. Yeah, Jesse. One rule over uh, many. Okay, one rule over many or one representing many. Yeah, so thank you. Yeah, so basically one representing many. Okay, so he, he just jumped into the water there. Thank you very much, Jesse. Uh, federalism or representative headship is how the outcome um, of the actions of one applies to many. So the outcome of the covenant of works in this case has applied to us and specifically we see death through disobedience. So one man's act of disobedience, death spread to all men. That's Romans 5. In the span, here's an, here's an easy one for you, okay? So you got to jump into the water with me here. Uh, in the span of all human history, how many federal heads are there? Two. Two. Who are there? Adam, Adam and Christ. Okay, Adam and Christ. Good. Uh, in what passages? Do you remember any of the passages we talked about that we see this concept of federalism or representative headship? Yeah. Romans 5.12. Okay, Romans 5.12 and following. Good. There's one. Another passage. All right. Genesis. Genesis. Yes. Good. Good guess. Go. Go back to the origin. Right. Right back to the beginning. And Genesis, in particular, Genesis two, uh, sixteen and seventeen. So, that's the origin of it. Romans five uh, shows that concept worked out. And there's one other key one. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, all right? So, um, it's going to be a tough group this morning. <laughs> Maybe it's just because you're chewing. It's, uh, you're, you're chewing, you're enjoying the breakfast, and uh, the, all that stuff needs to be processed, and then the blood needs to go back to your brain. After going to your stomach, it's got to go back to your brain, all right? All right, so I'll talk a little bit. Let that process happen. Hopefully the coffee will kick in, and then I'll ask you more questions. All right. So what we're going to do this morning is return to that article uh, and kind of work through some of that with John Murray's article, The Ad Adamic Administration. And that's, he's talking about this very thing, about Adam's unique role as the federal head of the human race. And there are three reasons that this matters. Um, 
number one, this concept of Adam's unique role as the federal head of the human race, it matters because it shows the principle of governance by means of representation. So governance by representation, it's a principle that we operate with ever since the beginning of time. Uh, we we, we uh, rejoice in this concept here in our own country, but sometimes we don't stop and think, where did this come from? It comes from Genesis chapter 2. Also shows us, that another reason this matters, it shows us that only two men in the human race have the unique role as federal head, Adam and Jesus. Adam and Jesus. So nobody else is, I mean, in, in small way for humanity. And then thirdly, the reason this matters is it shows the superior headship of Jesus Christ. It shows the, the security in his headship, the security of our own status in him, if we're in him, if we're in Christ, if we're in this new race of people uh, headed up by Christ, then we have come into the security of his headship uh, and a fullness of communion with God in Christ. And that's really where God is moving this whole, this whole redemptive uh, history. Last, last week we got into Murray's introduction. I'm hoping this, this bit of reminder will get us back into the thinking here and kind of set us up for what we're going to cover today. First, God made Adam to walk in obedience. So when he, he created Adam, he created Adam not to just enjoy, you know, the fruit of the garden and the, the fruit of the world and everything that God put in the world, but he made him to walk in obedience to God. So here's uh, Murray. He says, man was created in the image of God, a self-conscious, free, responsible, religious agent. Such identity implies an inherent, native, inalienable obligation to love and serve God with all the heart, soul, strength, and mind. As long as man fulfilled God's demands, his integrity would have been maintained. He would have continued righteous and holy. In this righteousness, he would be justified, that is, approved and accepted by God, and he would have life. Okay, so Adam is made to walk in obedience. Second thing we see is that God provided in Adam, uh, God provided for Adam a way to go from a contingent state of holiness and blessedness to a permanent state of holiness and blessedness. And so if Adam had fulfilled his duty to obey God, he would have kept this status. He would have continued in holiness and righteousness, and he would have enjoyed the continuance of God's blessing. Here's Murray again. He says, the Adamic administration is construed as an administration in which God, by a special act of providence, again, uniquely applying to Adam, by a special act of providence established for man the provision whereby he might pass from the status of contingency to one of confirmed and indefectible holiness and blessedness. That is, and this is a, the, here's these Latin terms, from posse peccari to posse non peccari. That is, able to sin and able not to sin. So passing from that state to non posse peccari, that is, not able to sin. So this administration that Murray's talking about here, the Adamic administration came in the form of a test, came in the form of a probationary period, a test. If Adam passed the test, he would move from a state of contingency to a state of confirmation, from a state of, you could say, mutability in his holiness to a state of immutability in his holiness to enjoy the permanent state of blessing of God's approval and full communion. All right. We can also, we can see this just by analogy in the angelic realm that 
there was a the the angels satan and his angels the demons a third of the angelic host they moved from a state of holiness and blessedness into a state of um uh, unholiness a state of curse and they're permanently fixed in that state the holy angels remain who remained with god and did not rebel and follow satan's rebellion stayed in a permanent state of holiness fixed state of holiness so that is what god intended for uh for mankind as well third thing we see in this administration adam represented the entire human race into he would by his actions he would move the race from the condition of being able to sin and able not to sin to one in which no one would ever be able to sin i'm looking forward to that state of being where i'm not ever able to sin again okay so that's not coming until uh, Christ glorifies us, but, um, but that's what we, that is our hope in the gospel. So for today, that's just an introduction from what we talked about last time. For today, we're going to look more carefully at Adam's probation, and this is going to help us understand what happened at the fall. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and find your way to Genesis 2, 9. And what we're going to talk about here, first of all, is this condition that God places upon Adam and how we see this condition related to a test, related to probation. Here's how God provided the condition. Uh, Genesis 2.9 says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. And then you see two very special trees, two trees with greater purpose and meaning. It says the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? So you see all these trees, then you see these two very special trees. What is the point? Here's a question for you, so I hope that coffee's kicked in. What's the point of identifying all other trees as pleasant to the sight and good for food? What do those represent or demonstrate to the man? Yeah. Wayne. Um, God's providence, his enduring love and provision for the man. All right, God's providence, a fancy way of saying how God provides, what he provides. So yes, his provision, his love, his concern, his care, his goodness, you could say. What else do you see in there? Created all these other trees and he identified them as pleasant to the sight, good for food. Yeah. His over-the-top goodness to Adam because there's only one tree that wasn't it was off limits. There was more than you can imagine good out there for <clears throat> Abundant goodness. Not just not just some goodness here tucked away behind a fence, but goodness that I mean it's a world of goodness. He's walking around in a world of goodness. There's only one off limits tree. Good. Very good point. Yeah. David. Lord provided both form and function. Form and function. Tease that out for us. What do you mean? So, the Lord didn't just create a world where man could be physically sustained, but also as the aesthetic as well. Okay. Multiple levels of <laughs> okay, good. It acknowledges multiple levels of human need that there is not only the need for sustenance, good food, and, and we can imagine that the best steak that we can imagine in our minds doesn't compare to what could be found in that garden. Okay, I know, isn't that, isn't that crazy? <laughs> but that's, that's the goodness that God created things with. So, so there's sustenance, but it's sustenance that's enjoyable. It's good for food, not just 
sufficient for food, but good. And then also pleasant to the eyes. There's an aesthetic element to the garden that, that actually deals with an aesthetic sense that we have, some aesthetic need. That's kind of an intangible goodness, isn't it? It's an intangible, something tangible like a piece of fruit or a piece of food. That, that's something I can concretely pick up, eat, and digest. It, it replenishes me, um, strengthens me. But aesthetic sense, seeing beauty, seeing goodness around us, um, there's something there that has to do with the thought life of man. Okay, so keep that in mind. Second question here, so we've got Genesis 2.9, we've got all these trees that are pleasant to the sight, good for food, and, and like Joe said, a world abundantly filled with these kinds of trees. And then two special trees, tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So first the tree of life. If God had already given life, which Adam's breathing, walking around, he's been breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life by God, if God's already given life, what's the point of the tree of life? What's that about? Joe? Are you going to be our, are you going to be our star today? <laughs> In the absence of other, uh, yeah. A recognition that the, the life comes from God and that it is a continued dependence upon him for yeah. Yeah, life. Good. A, a recognition that life comes from God and a continued dependence on him for life. That's, that's a great answer. Um, just think about how that's portrayed, particularly in a tree. Okay. Next question is, if God had already pronounced everything good, what is the point of creating a forbidden tree and then telling Adam about evil? Very first time, just telling Adam that this word evil comes into God's non-fallen world, pre-fall world. What's that about? Man, I'm stretching you guys. I'm sorry. I, I didn't know the questions would be like this. Jesse. I mean, to test his metal, like to put him on probation. <clears throat> I don't really see another reason, but to, okay. to show him, you know, I mean, it's kind of proof that he was on a probationary period of whether he will choose right or wrong. Okay, so this is proof that he's on some kind of a probation here. He's, uh, there's a test provided for him. And it's kind of an inescapable conclusion, all right? This is, what, this, is what the, this is what Murray and others are saying, is that, look, we can't avoid the fact that God put this in the garden, and there is a test created for Adam, all right? Anybody else have an answer? Yeah, Adam. Could you also say, like, um, God doesn't leave his creation in darkness, right? Like, he always reveals his for his creation, so... Here it is, like, hey, I'm not leaving in the dark. There is evil out there that could possibly be. And then, you know, it's not like, oh, this was a surprise, like this tree was going to create evil, right? Like, okay. He kind of just reveals himself and his will to his creation, even in the beginning. What a great answer. Yeah, so, so revealing, revealing that there is bad out there that you need to be on guard against. And what does that demonstrate in God by, by giving Adam this, this, um, this, this idea, this understanding that there's evil there? What does that demonstrate? It demonstrates his love. It demonstrates his, his acknowledgement of Adam having a will to choose. And that will can take him in one of two directions. And so there's a warning element. There's an encouragement element. There's a, let me bring you into the thinking kind of an element, a discipleship element, you could say. 
So yeah, God is treating Adam with, with great dignity, the dignity that befits the one created in his image. Yeah, great, great answer. Well, Devin, did you have your hand up? Yeah, I'm just thinking of in the fullness of time, if there wasn't a way for Adam to sin, then Christ would have never happened. And okay. Christ is the main purpose for God's glory. So. Bingo. So again, you're going back into the eternal counsels of God where there's this decree of redemption. There's this uh, covenant of redemption, this intention to bring Christ into the world because that Adam isn't the goal. Christ is the goal. The first federal head is not the goal, is the final goal. The second federal head is the final goal. Good. Great. You guys, are th you guys were quiet at first. I was a little nervous, but man, you guys are coming through. Thanks a lot. All right. So, thanks for interacting on those questions. We discover later in this chapter, in Genesis chapter 2, that, you know, and it's right before God identifies the need that man has for the woman. Uh, it's right before God puts Adam to work in naming the animals. We start to discern why God put those two special trees in the garden. Look down to verse 16. In verse 16, Genesis 2, 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. The way that's phrased in the Hebrew is like expansive provision, kindness, like Joe's saying, demonstrably abundant in his goodness. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Like, go get it. Go enjoy. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So here's a specially designed test. It's a test that's uniquely for Adam. And if we simplify that sentence, we can clarify the conditional nature of this test. Basically, it's eat the forbidden tree, you'll die. Okay, just simplify it. You disobey, you die. That's the concept. So what Murray and others, many others are trying to say is that this test, which frames the conditional situation for Adam in the negative, that is, you eat, you die, due to the conditional nature here, this prohibition infers a positive corollary, that is, you obey, you live. Okay? So you eat, you die on the one hand, and Adam can intuit through that, he can infer, well then, if I don't eat, I live. If I obey, I live. So, death for disobedience, life for obedience. That's the concept here, okay? Here's how Murray put this. He says the condition was obedience. Obedience was focused in compliance with the prohibition respecting the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was not the only command given to Adam, but it served to exemplify in an acute and condensed way the obedience owing to God. Obedience unreserved and unswerving in all the extent of divine obligation, end quote. In other words, Adam was tested in just this one thing. This is, this is the, the, the point of contact with the test, with the, with the probation, his probationary period. It's just this one test. Stay away from that which is forbidden. Just one sin of commission that he needed to avoid. That's the nature of his test. Now, what positive commands had God given to Adam at this point? By Genesis 2, 16, 17, what positive commands are there in the world? Eat, you shall live. What, is that what you were thinking too? Eat and you shall live. Okay, what else? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. 
What else? Dominion. What's that? Dominion. Exercise dominion over the earth. Yep. So do the earth, exercise dominion over it. Okay. So you see, um, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Think that'd be a problem for him? Is that hard? I take, he takes one look at Eve, right? Not a problem. Not a problem. I'm going to go after that. <laughs> exercise dominion over the earth. Not a problem either. The very next scene, God puts Adam to work doing what? Naming the animals. What is the naming process? Exercising dominion. That's, a, that's, a, that's an exercise of his authority. Exercise of authority over the animals and over the earth. So God puts Adam to work naming animals. He's already getting Adam started. He's guiding Adam. He's discipling Adam himself, showing him how to do it. So notice, though, that God gave no positive commands to be the condition for Adam's obedience. Just one prohibition. Pass, passing this test seems relatively easy, right? I mean, it's just one tree. Don't eat of it. That's it. You'd think it would be easy. So let's talk about the, proba the probation, this test. How the tree, the tree symbolizes the nature of this test. So we're thinking like in Joe's comment about you know, the, the source of life in the tree of life. Where, where does life come from? And it's symbolized in a tree. So this tree in the probation symbolizes the nature of the test. Think about this. Just as a tree has a root, trunk, branches, and fruit, so does obedience and so does disobedience, right? Root, trunk, branch, and fruit. Enjoying all the other trees that God provided, which are pleasant to the eyes, and good for food illustrates the fruit, the good fruit of obedience. Imagining the opposite. Eating from the forbidden tree would produce the bad fruit of disobedience. So again, root, trunk, branch, fruit, the fruit of disobedience. So the symbolism of a tree, what, what, a, what Adam could intuit by looking at a tree and what it is, what, it, what its nature is, what it does, that's instructive to Adam. It encourages obedience and it discourages disobedience. Just as the, the roots of all trees are hidden from the eyes, so are the roots of obedience and disobedience. The root of our obedience, the root of our disobedience, hidden in the heart. It's a matter hidden from our eyes. And so faith in God produces obedience. Faith in whatever is not God, that produces disobedience. Okay, you with me so far? Nod aggressively or shake your head. Okay. Trees are known by their fruit, right? In this garden, some trees are for looking at, others are for eating. Trees for viewing and trees for eating, two kinds. Some trees for food. So we got the tree of the apple, produces apples, eat those apples. Trees of oranges, produces oranges, eat the oranges, so you got edible fruit. Other trees, though, are for viewing and not for eating. So I looked up some beautiful blossoming trees like the magnolia, looked at those pictures online. I remember living in the south and seeing magnolia trees, beautiful blossoms produced there. You don't want to eat them, okay? You want to look at them. Uh, white dogwood, the Yoshino cherry tree, beautiful trees, beautiful blossoming trees, but you don't eat them, okay? They're for viewing. What about the two special trees? Are they for eating or for viewing? What do they produce? 
the tree of life, according to Genesis 3.22 and Revelation 22.7, that is an eating tree. What's the fruit of that tree? Life, right? What about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, according to Genesis 2.17, that is explicitly not an eating tree. Don't eat it, because if you eat it, you will die. So don't eat that tree. That is a tree meant for viewing. And what does that tree produce? Well, if Adam used that tree as God intended, by viewing it only, uh, by learning from its existence, that produces fruit. It um, produces the knowledge of good and evil, but it produces it from the standpoint of obedience, from the standpoint of faith in God. So from the standpoint of faith in God, learning about good and evil from God's perspective. What about eating that tree, from the, the fruit of that tree? A tree that's meant for viewing only. By doing what's forbidden and eating its fruit, that produces fruit. It produces the knowledge of good and evil, from a, but from a radically different standpoint, from the standpoint of death. All right? So you have viewing trees and eating trees, and then you have the tree of life, which is an eating tree, and you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is for viewing, not for eating. So what did Adam do? He ate from the tree that he should have been looking at, observing. Does that make sense? So to focus on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for a moment, there's two ways to gain the knowledge of good and evil. It's by obedience and by disobedience. Um, so by viewing the tree, not eating its fruit, i.e. obeying God, Adam and Eve would have walked in faith. They would discern the knowledge of good and evil from the standpoint of faith, from the standpoint of trusting in God. God could tell them all about it. He'd instruct them. He'd teach them. By eating from the tree, i.e. disobeying God, Adam and Eve would have walked in not faith, which is exactly what happened, which is exactly what we're all living in. Here's uh, Murray. He says, knowing good and evil would be the result of either outcome. Knowing good and evil, result of either outcome, whether a successful or an unsuccessful probation. So this tree of knowledge of good and evil is a powerful, powerful influence here. But here's what he says, in the, in the event of a successful probation, the experience of the crisis of temptation and the experience of assured and indefectible goodness would have imparted a renewed and greatly increased knowledge of the contrast between good and evil and a renewed appreciation of the good as the opposite of evil. Furthermore, Adam, if elevated to a higher state of knowledge, would, have, would be given enlarged knowledge not only of God, but also of created reality and of God's providential order. The latter would include the system of evil in which Satan was the prince. Empirically, knowledge is, an, is knowledge of good and evil as correlated and contrasted realities. Okay, so just pausing there. Through a successful probation, if he looked at that tree, did not eat from it, but viewed it, he would have come through his probation at some point in time, and God would have further instructed him, further helped him to understand the great contrast, the correlation of good and evil, but also the contrast. He would have been instructed. He would have been strengthened. He would have been confirmed in that state of righteousness, and that would have been passed on to all his posterity. Yes, Adam, so, or uh, Wayne. Applying the principle of, of being a Berean, there are, there are many doctrines in Scripture where we're encouraged not to speculate. Right, um, the province of angels, certain aspects of the angels, or certain aspects of the demon, things like that, where you can fall into the trap of 
speculation that can take you down there and pass. Do we have scriptural basis for assuming that there was a intended completed end of the probation, right, without the fall? Because that, that seems to be almost the same thing, right? It's a fruitless speculation because the intra-Trinitarian will yeah. was fulfillment in Christ. Right. Um, so the end of Adam's probation, like when would that have come to a completion had he persisted in obedience? Um, but there's no scriptural indication of that because that's not the turn the story took. Not, not only that, but that's not actually the ordained, decreed intention of God, ultimately. But we're inferring that from, uh, from what's written. So uh, wouldn't the, uh, wouldn't the, the explicit part be pre-fall? So they were in the garden. They had this wonderful opportunity presented by God. As long as they were obedient, this would continue. So it didn't give an end to the probation, but it was very clearly defined what the, what the obedience resulted in until the disobedience. Yeah, that's correct. I think what his point is, though, is he's saying, but how do we know that there was a time frame on this? How do we know that it would come to an end and then then all of Adam's posterity would be locked in a mutable, uh, an immutable state of holiness and righteousness. I think that's his, that's his uh, concern. But the, the uh, speculation is that it, he's going to fall. If you look at God and all his plans and everything, we have to assume that there's going to be a fall. And I don't think we're speculating and saying that there's going to be a fall. Right, yeah, and I don't think that's his point. I think what his point is on the positive side, the confirmation in obedience. So I think that's it. He's, he's making a different point, but I, I agree with you. Yeah. Another reason I don't think it's speculative is because if we look at what the tree of life is throughout Scripture, it is about giving life and confirmation. That's why we see it at the end of the book of Revelation as well. Yeah. That's why when the whole happened, they kicked him out of the garden and gave angels to guard so that they wouldn't eat of the tree of life. So yeah. it's... If they're kicked out so that they don't eat of that tree of life, so that they don't confirm themselves in this state, so that they can right. still be redeemed. Right. That's that's true too. That's that's coming in, in a little bit. But that Genesis three twenty two is an important uh, important um, verse, saying you know he's he's banished them from the garden and he's barred their way to the tree of life, lest they eat and live forever in what in a condition of disobedience doesn't want them living forever in that in that condition uh, of fall okay so we'll come back to that though thank you for bringing that up uh, uh, Mike first and then Mark and then we'll g- I gotta get going well if Adam obeyed that kind of ended the story it wouldn't be a story that wouldn't glorify God by Adam failing then you see everything that happens in scripture and then it's all really to glorify God. It's not about us. Yeah. 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 It's about glorifying God and, and you see how God works through imperfect people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very true. Very true. That th- this, this does have a larger story as we see. We're here in Genesis and there are 65 other books of the Bible. <laughs> so we do have a whole lot more to go. You're right. Exactly. Mark? I'll be honest. I was tracking with Wayne on uh-huh. the speculative point but then my brain went to the promised land the mosaic covenant and you could do the same thing there the speculation righteous speculation in other words seeing the contrast of positive and negative if you go into the land you obey my commands and you'll live there in that land forever although god knew the israelites were not going to do that they were going to be conquered but you can you can see 
the positive speculation that what if they had stayed righteous? We would have that theocracy today, God-led nation, right? Mm. But we have a future God-led millennial kingdom by Christ. That's the positive. I, I see it very similar to mm -hmm. this. Yeah, that's that's a good point, Mark. Um, and, and the reason it's important to to not uh, and I don't think it's I don't think it's you know philosophical pondering and getting into speculative areas of uh, you know disobedience and prideful prideful you know yeah. um, philosophizing because it's important that we understand that this was a this was a real offer to Adam on God's part he's not playing games he's not saying here, here's a, um, here's a promise of life, um, but you really can't ever make it, you know. He's not saying to Israel, here, here's the Mosaic code, stick to this, do this and you will live. And he's, but he's saying to him, you know, he's kind of holding behind his back, but I don't really mean it. He, he really does. This is a true offer to Adam. Do this and you'll live. Eat, eat, eat of this and you'll die. Don't eat and enjoy everything else I've given you, and you'll live, okay? So I appreciate the, uh, the, the question of the challenge, Wayne, because it's, it's important to flesh some of this out, but it is a, I think it's a legitimate offer. I think it's important to, uh, to, see, to work through this in our thinking and see the inferences. So, we talked about the event of a successful probation. Here's Murray on the, in the event of an unsuccessful probation. He says, in the event of an unsuccessful probation, what actually occurred, the experience of all the evils that befell our first parents gave them a vivid sense of the bitterness of sin and its consequences in contrast with the good of their former condition. They knew the good of integrity. They came to know the evil of apostasy. We must not suppose that the knowledge would have the same content in either case. How diverse the states of consciousness by the fall, there invaded man's consciousness elements that would never have crossed the threshold, a sense of guilt, of fear, of shame. There entered a new dispensational or dispositional complex of desires, impulses, affections, motives, and purposes. We may never conceive of knowledge as a state of mind apart from the total condition of heart and will, yet in both cases the description applies the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? That's uh, end quote there on Murray. How do we, how do we understand God subjecting Adam to probation, God testing Adam, without God being the author of Adam's sin? Oh, okay. You're just scratching your head. Yeah, Bruce. <laughs> kind of two things come to mind. Okay, for one, you know, God was our creator. And he had, but in his creation, he had structure. Okay, but yet I also reminded of a little child. You know, a little child has this tendency, as we all have from birth, to even though we have this nice little playpen, we want to climb out. And it's part of that. I hate, I'm not sure that's the correct word. Sinful nature that we have. But we always, from the get-go, have always wanted to go, no, I'm not content with this. <clears throat> okay. Um, so God has created everything good, and yet man, in our sinful condition, 
Yeah, man, man wants to wander. The difference with us and Adam, though, is Adam is created in a state of righteous innocence and holiness, right? So um, he didn't have this internal desire to get out of the playpen. He, he did not. He did not. He didn't have that. Why would he ever choose to not? <laughs> yeah, well, so, Scott. It's because he was created to, for the, with the ability to change. Okay, so he had the ability to change. He's, a, he's in a mutable condition, right? He's not fixed. He's in a mutable condition. He's in a contingent state of righteousness and holiness. Good. Chuck? Just tagging off of Scott's comment, Pase um, Picare, Pase Non Picare. That was his yeah. status. He, he could sin or he could not sin. Right. Um, and also, I was thinking of James James one thirteen. Yep. You know, when you're tempted, don't say God is tempting me, for He can't. Be God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself doesn't tempt anyone. Right? Yeah, and um, so we learn way ahead of that. But that was still the word even then right. before it was put in writing. It was, right. It was still truth then. Right. So that's where I'm going with that. Good. Yeah, it's true. If you continue on in James 1, 13 and 14, it says, but each one is tempted when he is dragged away and enticed by what? His own lust, right? Did Adam have that? Did he have sinful desires? Did he have sinful desires? That was what Bruce was saying, too. Did he desire to get out of the playpen? Mm, something was provoked there, right? Uh, come over to Austin. Yeah, in chapter 5 of our confession, it talks about primary and secondary causes. Okay, good. And I think that's a good way to understand it, is that Adam was the primary cause, but just as we know from the scriptures like Genesis 50, 20, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God has an overarching plan to use evil for his glory, kind of like what Mike was saying, like, Adam disobeyed, but that will bring God more glory in the end because yeah. of Christ. Mm -hmm. We don't always understand that. We don't always see that. And that's why the problem with evil is like a big thing for some people. Yeah. They, don't, they don't understand God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So. Yeah. So, so uh, good. Uh, just flipping that around, Adam wasn't the primary cause. God, was, God is the primary cause. He's, a, he's one of the secondary causes. And God makes use of secondary means or secondary causation. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. Um, so without getting into all the, just to key off of that, without getting all the particulars of causation, because um, we could we could do a whole um, session or two on causation. And it's, it is very interesting and worthwhile, but uh, that's not our purpose this morning. But God made use of approximate cause, namely Satan, in the disobedience of Adam. Uh, and so we, if we put it simply, think about it like this. The efficient cause of disobedience, that is the one, disobedience, that is the one who bears moral culpability, that's Adam and Eve, as they sinned. Okay, so they are the efficient cause of the sin, of the transgression. The proximate cause, also bearing moral culpability, is Satan. He's got his own, he's got his own culpability in his own sin, but then leading others to sin, he's a proximate cause by bringing temptation. But God then is the ultimate cause with no moral culpability, because James 1.13, he committed no sin. He didn't participate in tempting. God put a test before Adam and Eve, put a test before Adam, but he didn't tempt them. There's another actor in this play, another actor in this garden who slithers in in the form of a serpent. So this brings us to the role that Satan played by choice. So we've talked about God's provision of the condition just by providing the trees 
in the garden. We talked about the probation itself and the nature of the probation. Now we're going to talk about the temptation, the temptation. The, the serpent symbolizes the nature of temptation. You think about the, the trees as symbolizing the nature of obedience and disobedience, root, trunk, branch, fruit, and you see the serpent symbolizing the nature of to uh, temptation. We can go down the road there as talking about his, the enticement, the cunning, uh, deadly venom, you know, the, the coming near and, and being curious and all that, but then striking with the, the, the venom of the snake. Listen to this from, um, from Murray again. He says, the sense in which temptation is used in this instance is that of a solicitation to sin and the placing of an inducement to sin in the way of another. It is temptation in this sense that is denied of God, James 1.13. He did not solicit sin in Adam and Eve. He did the opposite. He warned them against it and placed the inducement in the opposite direction. God did try our first parents. He was the agent of the probation. The serpent was the agent in the temptation. It is of God to try and prove with a, with a view to moral and religious strength, confirmation, and increased blessing. And you see that in Genesis 22, 1, 22, 12, verses 16 to 17 as well. So he says it's of God to try and prove with a view to moral and religious strength. It is satanic to seduce, and it is designed for weakening and degradation. Okay, you see the distinction he's making there? This is what God does. God tests, proves. He puts, just like we do in parenting, we test our kids. Do you see this in sports? How a coach will test his team, put them into a scrimmage situation. Uh, after working, working, running drills, running drills, then he'll put them into a scrimmage situation to test them. And, but it's for the purpose of strengthening them. It's for the purpose of helping them to succeed, uh, to confirm them and increase their winning percentage or whatever. It's satanic, though, to seduce. And he does his seduction, not to test and to prove, but to weaken and degrade. Would you just repeat that last sentence? It is of God. And it, is it is of God to try and prove with a view to moral and religious strength, confirmation, and increased blessing. It is satanic to seduce, and is, it is designed for weakening and degradation. Going on in Murray's article, he says, in the temptation of our first, in, in the temptation, our first parents were accosted by the serpent as the instrument of Satan, and were subjected to doubting, unbelieving, and apostatizing suggestions and allegations. These suggestions did not originate in the mind of Eve. They were injected. It was not sin for Eve to have been confronted with these suggestions and solicitations. And it was in the circumstance of this temptation our first parents were called upon to fulfill the condition of the administration. Temptation was of divine appointment, though Satan, not God, was the agent. End quote. Does that all that make sense? Give me a good confident nod or uh, shake your head. What's that? Repeat that again. Yeah, just go ahead. <laughs> Repeat which it was not it was not temptation to um, just that last paragraph? Okay, I'll do that last paragraph again. In the temptation, our first parents were accosted by the serpent as the instrument of Satan, 
and were subjected to doubting, unbelieving, and apostatizing suggestions and allegations. Okay, pausing there for a second. Serpent came in, accosted them, suggested certain things about God, uh, made allegations against his character. We're going to get into this next time or the next times as we get into harmardiology, but, but um, he's the one who suggested these things. Okay? He's the one that alleged certain hidden motives and agendas of God uh, tucked away from Adam and Eve that they weren't privy to. Okay? So these suggestions, Murray says, did not originate in the mind of Eve. They were injected. That's the, that's the venom idea, the poison idea of the serpent injecting ideas into her head. It was not sin for Eve to have been confronted with these suggestions and solicitations. And it was in the circumstance of this temptation, our first parents were called upon to fulfill the condition of the administration. So basically, these are the circumstances that God designed for their testing, for their proving. So here's the last sentence. Temptation was of divine appointment, though Satan, not God, was the agent. End quote. God is the ultimate cause. Satan, the proximate cause. Adam and Eve, the efficient cause of transgression. Make sense? <laughs> All right. Is it similar to like when, like Job, um, Satan had to ask permission from God to tempt him. And then in this situation too, Satan didn't do this underneath, uh, not, underneath God not knowing that it was, he was allowed to do this. So God tested them through the agent of True. Satan. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's rightly put. Um, Spurgeon would say the devil is God's devil. The devil is on a leash. He only goes so far as God lets him go. And God at any point yanks that leash. The devil is God's devil. He's used to prove and try God's people. And certainly he did that with Job. And Job did not sin in all of his, you know, all of his being afflicted, right? He said, This too isn't teaching them knowledge of good and evil. He's, he's allowing them to see evil. And if this is a probationary time, then God is giving them that knowledge his way. And then instead, they, they take the shortcut and they go to the tree and they eat it. Yeah, yeah. that's good. That's a good observation. God, is, God is, truly is teaching them, exposing them to good and evil, exposing them to what evil looks like. And, um, and if they had gone through the test, they would have learned good and evil and the contrast between good and evil um, God's way instead of taking, like you said, the shortcut. Okay, good. And Satan wants to take the shortcut. That's what he entices them to do. All right. Remember, remember what he said? You'll be like God. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Right. Do you mind just speaking on like when it talks about like God testing people in scripture? So like just there's different. I, I don't mind, but I don't want to. I've got more to finish and I want to make sure we get through that. We'll come back to that. So just keep that in your mind and we'll come back to that. Yeah, it's good. So Murray summarizes, he says, it was in the double circumstance of probation and temptation that our first parents were called upon to obey. Our first parents had the ability to resist the temptation and to obey the prohibition, prohibition, but they did not will to obey, and so they fell. 
that did not will to obey language that Murray uses there, it's, that comes from uh, John Calvin and his institutes. So they did not will to obey, and so they fell. That's a warning to all of us. If we don't get up every single day and will to obey, it's that whole concept that John Owen uses too. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There's not a day that sin is not prevailing or being prevailed upon. So be killing sin. Be aggressive in your mortification of sin and resisting temptation. Get up every day willing to obey, willing to uh, walk in obedience before the Lord. If you, if you enter into your day passively, you will be overtaken. You'll be hunted down by sin and made prey. Okay? So, I want to pause here and ask a couple of questions. Uh, what advantages did Adam and Eve have toward obeying God? What kinds of things encouraged and strengthened their obedience or their commitment to obedience? What, what advantages do they have here at this pre-fall condition? Walking with God, sure. Yeah, there's a, so there's, there's fellowship, there's communion. Yeah. yeah. Yep. They've never seen or known sin, so they had no examples of any kind of disobedience against God. So it wasn't like in our culture right now, it's just everywhere. You can't step out your front door, you can't, even in your own house, it's sin is everywhere and its reminders are everywhere. So no other, no other external solicitations, that, that wasn't prevail, the prevailing mood in the, you could call it the culture in the garden. Um, the culture there was all goodness. It was all in the uh, completely other direction. Good. Yeah, Brian? So they already had, we talked about this, the provision, the abundance around them, and they were unstained by sin, so there wasn't this, you know, what am I missing more? There's, there's something else that, that's better. <coughs> you know, that I can add to this. So they have everything good around them. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. That's, that's right. right. I'll just key off that concept. It's just, this is all against the backdrop of God's abundant provision and goodness. All against the backdrop of everything good he's done and provided for them. And there's just this one single restriction. Just one little pro prohibition, one little tree among all the good, wonderful fruit bearing trees the blossoming trees, unrestrained permission from God to eat and enjoy and to look and observe and learn and observe God's goodness. So the question is, will Adam content himself in God's goodness and enjoy this world of generous provision that God has given? Or will he ignore all the good things God has given and take instead what God has withheld from him? The one thing that he's withheld. At its heart, Adam's probation is a test of whether Adam will trust God or whether he will trust that which is not God. That's the heart of this. All right? Here's another question. Did Adam's failure mean that God failed? Did Adam's transgression diminish God's wisdom that there's this unforeseen error in the plan? No. Thank you for being emphatic. No. No. Why, why not? Why is this not a failure? I mean, you shouldn't have set that serpent loose, right? I, I'm, I'm all for killing serpents, all right? Shoot them every time you see them. Um, <laughs> good or bad. <laughs> What's that? Say good serpents are bad. <laughs> I don't care. The rat snake, you know. You got... Yeah, I don't know. We'll find another way to exterminate rats, but I <laughs> kill the serpents. 
Uh, I don't like snakes. I know there are good ones. I know you let them loose in your garden. That's good. But uh, every now and again, they eat your cat, too. So. All right. We're getting off track, aren't we? That's probably my fault. Um, so, uh, so no, not at all. Obviously, were you raising your hand or scratching your head? Okay, all right. Um, so, so no, this this does not mean God failed. God did not, you know. There's not this unforeseen, you know, error in His plan, and all of a sudden His plan A has to be chucked because, uh, oh, whoops, <laughs> didn't I didn't calculate that, and so I've got to go to plan B now. The, the image of God in humanity was not complete in Adam, okay? It wasn't perfected. It wasn't brought to its full completion. As we discover in the progress of Revelation, the image of God is perfected, fulfilled, completed only in Christ, the second head, okay? So that's where we're going. Uh, it's written, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. There's, there's something superior about Christ that God, from before time began, wanted to take us to. So God is not trying to work out some plan B now because of an unforeseen failure of Adam in the fall. He's still working out his plan A. And that's what he always has is a, is a perfect plan A, right? God doesn't consider a whole bunch of different options and say, I'm going to choose this one. God, everything he thinks is perfect and good, right? So, um, whoops. Here we go. Plan A has always been uh, to bring glory to God through Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of a better covenant. And so Christ won for his own race full and final salvation. He moved humanity from contingency to perfection. Christ has also moved humanity from partial communion to God to a what Murray calls a full-orbed communion with God in the assurance of per permanent possession and increasing knowledge. Okay, so we see the condition God provided for in Genesis 2.9 when he introduced all the trees and the two very special trees. We can see the probation God set up for Adam in Genesis 2.16 to 17. And then the temptation that came not from God, but from the proximate cause who is Satan. Now we're going to consider the inference in the probation, which is the promise of life. This is kind of where, where uh, I want to get to with Wayne's question. So look, we'll talk about the tree of life and the inference from the negative, and then the analogy of Romans 5. So the tree of life, we said earlier, the tree of life, according to Genesis 3.22, in fact, might as well, we, I don't think we've read that yet, all right? So tree, tree of life, Genesis 3.22, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Then he doesn't finish the sentence. So he says, lest this happen, and then he doesn't finish the sentence, he just acts. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We see that tree of life showing up again in Revelation 22, starting in verse 7. And we see the tree of life, according to Genesis 3.22, uh, Revelation 22, 7, and on and on in Revelation 22, the tree of life is an eating tree. And the fruit of eating that tree is life. So Murray says the tree of life represented an everlasting life. He goes on and says this, Adam's expulsion signified forfeiture of that which the tree of life symbolized. 
and was complementary to the fulfillment of the threat of Genesis 2.17 and the pronouncement of Genesis 3.19. It must have represented the opposite of death, as its designation also clearly indicates. Furthermore, the references to the tree of life, like in Revelation 22, hark back to Genesis 3.22 and 24 and are fraught with this meaning. End quote. So Murray is saying, you see the connection between Genesis 3.22, Revelation 22, we see that the, the, the tree of life is an eating tree, not just a viewing tree, but it's eating. It actually produces a fruit, and that fruit is life. And as we see from 3.22, God's concern is that it would give everlasting life to Adam in his fallen condition. So God, here's a question, God banished Adam from the garden. He barred the way to the tree of life. Why was that a gracious action? Why was that kindness from God? Yeah. Um, because the contentious living with shame and guilt and remembrance of the state of perfection and ruminating on uh, the, the fall, right? The act of the fall, the, the self-focus, the self-choice right. would have been ruinous. To, to be experienced over and over and over and over for years after years after years and decades upon decades. As it, as it was, Adam lived, what, 900-some years? Uh, that's a long time to live in this state. I mean, we, we live 70, 80 years, and it's tough enough. You know, I, what was it? Uh, was it Jacob that lived 130 years and he talked to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, how, how old are you? He said, uh, 130 years and long and miserable of my life. <laughs> you, can, you can sympathize. I mean, at that point, 130 years old, what's your life? You know, a bunch of doctor visits and medications and a whole row of pills you got to take every single morning. He's like, long and weary is my life, man. I, I mean, you got 12 sons and they're all trying to kill each other. They, you know... So, so it, it is a gracious action exactly for what Wayne said, that, that living in this fallen condition forever, that's what hell looks like, not heaven. In our current state of death, we know good and evil from a vantage point of sin and death. That's not as God intended or intends. He intends us to know, know evil and good from the position of life. And he's restoring that. He's bringing us back to that in Christ. So if the tree signifies the seal of life, no matter whether humanity is in a state of blessedness in life or in a state of sin and death, then this is an example of God's preventative grace, that he would cast Adam out of the garden, that he would banish him, bar the way to the tree of life. Murray says this, in Adam's expulsion, we should find, therefore, a signal manifestation of preventative grace. Not only the grace of preventing an, an aggravation of Adam's sin, but of preventing confirmation in sin, misery, and death, of preventing a sin that would have sealed his doom. And what he's implying there, and he talked about earlier in the article, which I didn't quote, he's basically saying for Adam to, in his fallen condition, go and try to take and eat from the tree of life would have been a sin. That's, that's not something that he merited. That's not something that he, he disobeyed. And so he has no right to the tree of life, is what, what uh, Murray is making the point in his article. So he alludes to that by saying, 
He's preventing a sin that would have sealed his doom. That's the sin. who was eating of that tree of life. And that sin would have had a further consequence of sealing his doom. So God shielded Adam from the sin that would have put him outside the sphere of redemption. End quote. All right? A couple thoughts. So are we saying that once he would have, let's say he ate from the tree of life, that's kind of a one and done kind of thing, and that's how it would have ended the probation? Because once he ate well, from it... Well, you know, so I, that's a question I don't know the answer to, because when you come to Revelation, you see that the the leaves are of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations, and month after month, and, every, and we continue to eat of it, so I don't... I don't know. It's like, do you get like a month's worth of life from one piece of fruit? Or is it like you got to eat one every day or one a year is good? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Would have been that if he had chosen to eat from the tree of life, that would have, in a sense, ended the probation because that would have been the choice and that would have ended the test? That's, that's, a, that's a good thought. I hadn't thought of that. Is that how that would have worked to end the probation? Possibly. I haven't thought any further on that. It's a good question, or it's a good good thought, though. I'll have to think about that more. Brett? Is, is God's, uh, you know, kicking Adam out of the garden and keeping him from eating of the, the tree just more evidence that <clears throat> eternal life is really, uh, the, the focus on that concept is more about a quality of life because God didn't want him, that that's not eternal life, to be perpetually in a state of, Sin. So I'm yeah. just wondering if that's even more evidence that eternal life, that concept is yeah. more about the, the quality of life. Yeah, I, I think I think that is the concern. I mean, the longevity of life is 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 in the fact that like for Christ, the, the, the real um, troubling injustice of the cross is the fact that there is a man hanging on the cross who different than any other man at all, whoever was or ever will be, he committed no sin. There's, since there's no sin, there should be no death for him. He's the one man out of all of us who doesn't deserve to die at all. Why is he up there? And that's what Isaiah 53 is meant to answer. The reason he's up there is for our sin, not for his. And so it's just the, it's just the idea that living in obedience, in faith, trusting God, that is relationship with God, and that is eternal life. The fact that it continues on is just like a necessary consequence of living in communion with God, because God is life. God is eternal life. It is his, it is his essence to exist. It is his essence to live. And so if we're in communion with one whose essence it is to exist, to live, Therefore, we don't die, right? That's what God intends for us, being created in his image. So thank you for drawing that out. There's another, is it Chuck? Yeah. Um, so earlier with Wayne's question about the speculating and just now, we, we used the word probationary for both of those. Mm -hmm. So if there was a covenant with Adam, an irrevocable agreement with the, with the reward he gets and the penalty if he breaks it, where do we shift from an irrevocable, ongoing and perpetuity covenant to this idea of a probation? Well, it's a good question, and I think that uh, Murray, in his in his language here, is a little bit different than other covenant theologians in talking about the covenant of works. He wants to shift the argument away from talking strictly about a covenant of works and talk about an endemic administration. That is his language, and that's what is unique about Murray from other covenant theologians. So you 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 have 
you have um, put your finger on something that is a distinction. It's a distinction I don't want to trace right now, but um, because it's a little bit more complex and I want to get into, but um, what, what, is the, what is the nub of your question is? So, so if, if a covenant is an irrevocable agreement between two people mm -hmm. that has a reward for keeping it and a penalty for oh, oh, okay, yeah, that's... that's a period is right. a temporary time zone until we've completed that. Yeah, the, the, way, the, way that, the way that I would put that is, is in the fact that this is unique and exclusive to Adam. Okay, the covenant of works, unique and exclusive with Adam. It's it's irrevocable, but but it, he broke it. Right, but right. would it end? I mean, is there is there a probationary period if it's an irrevocable ongoing? In, in other words, wouldn't it be forever? Well, yeah, but but if if he if he no if he did complete what was a probationary period, then he would have fulfilled that covenant, just as Christ fulfilled the covenant for all of us, right? So the ongoing ongoing covenant provision of God would be life. So it's irrevocable in that sense. He continues to provide life. We continue in obedience, continue in life. Does that make sense? I don't want to, so just, not a bad question, but let's not chase that down just yet. Um, where am I? Okay, so another, talking about this, talked about the tree of life as inferring this promise of life. And then another evidence about the promise of life is in the inference from the negative. So, so Murray says in the, in view of the foregoing and the usage of scripture in general, that a negative in command, uh, um, implies the positive, we should infer the promise of life from the threat of death. Genesis two seventeen. Um, so by this inference, that he's talking about how the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would have accomplished its purpose in Adam's obedience and how he would obey in faith and be free to eat of the tree of life. So there's an inference from the negative that there's a promise of life. Um, also, the analogy of Romans 5, uh, we've talked about this already, raised this. Murray says the analogy of Romans 5, 12 to 19 would require that confirmation and righteousness carry the same of life. Um, so we see obviously this connection in hindsight as we look back from the perspective of Romans 5, but Romans 5 makes it clear that our inference is valid, that there is a promise of life for obedience, okay? So the consequence, what actually happened um, is threefold death, spiritual death, judicial death, and psychical death or psychophysical death or physical death, you could say. so. Spiritually, dying spiritually, dying judicially, and dying physically. I'm going to breeze over that because of the sake of time. I want to continue here. Um, how does this pertain to us? All this, con this uh, discussion of federalism, representative headship, how does this pertain to us? What is the relevance to us in particular? Adam, or, uh, Wayne, I'm not, not going to take your deal right now just because I want to uh, finish this. What's that? Oh, oh. <laughs> you was, no, rhetorical, sorry, should have said. Um, I'm setting up the next part um, by ask, asking, asking the question, how does it pertain to us? What relevance is his probation to each one of us today? From a negative perspective, Murray, and we have to agree, whether the covenant of works or demic administration, it, it really does apply to Adam and not to us, okay? So you're saying, well, then why do we go through all this? Okay, because you need to understand. The pro there's a prohibition that applies to Adam and not to us. 
The special, here's, here's Murray, the special prohibition of Eden does not apply to us now. It was restricted to the conditions and circumstances of Eden and has no relevance outside the same. The whole-souled obedience it was intended to exemplify is our obligation, but not this way of discharging it. That is, not as Adam was to do, okay? So there's a, there's a special prohibition in Eden, in, in Eden that applies to Adam, not to anybody else. Got it? There's a probation. Also applies to Adam and not to us. Murray writes this, as individuals, we do not undergo probation in terms of the Adamic administration. It's totally wrong to say that we're all, we are all Adam and sin as he did. That's not true. His sin was unique in that it was a fall from integrity. We do not individually fall from integrity. Hence, to construe the probations that we undergo as individuals. So this is to Daniel's question. He's wondering what kind of probation or testing do we go through? Um, this is so to construe the probations that we undergo as individuals in our lives, even in our corporate responsibilities in terms of the Adamic probation fails to take account of the unique character of Adam's situation and relationship. So Adam's test, what was going on in that covenant of works test, that's unique to Adam. And then, so we talked, I mentioned unique to Adam in terms of prohibition, in terms of the test, the probation, and in terms of the promise. We cannot attain to life in terms of the Adamic institution. The possibility was once for all forfeited for Adam and posterity by the fall of our first parents, and the Adamic institution had no redemptive provisions. Okay? That's Murray again, that quote. So fairly straightforward. We don't have a pro prohibition like Adam did. We don't undergo some special probation like he did, especially considering Adam came into the world in righteous innocence and holiness, not us. We enter the world as sinners. And we're not trying to attain the promise of life and find our own way back to the tree of life uh, of God. We, we are in need of grace. So this brings up positively how this does apply to us. What of this whole discussion um, applies to us? The consequences of federalism or representative headship. Um, the positive consequences and negative consequences, the consequences of this federal headship idea do apply to us. Talk about Adam's federal headship. Um, how does his headship apply to us? Because we're all living with the consequences of it consequences of the fall. We all stood, this is um, Murray again, we all stood, in, stood the probation in Adam as our representative head and failed in Adam. His sin was our sin, his fall, our fall, by reason of solidarity. And what he means there is by racial solidarity with Adam. So we're in Adam's race, we're part of his race, he's our head, he acted on behalf of all of us, we experienced the consequences of that. He goes on and says, likewise, the fulfillment of the, of the threat. What's the fulfillment of the threat? Death, right? The fulfillment of that draws posterity within its scope. All who die, die in Adam. And in Adam, all died. This is Romans 5, 12, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. The threat exercises its sanction with unrelenting severity, unless totally different provisions of redemptive grace intervene. And by the way, they have. So, 
The consequences of federalism apply to us in Adam's federal headship, his federal role. They also apply to us in terms of Christ's federal role, both his passive obedience and his active obedience. His passive obedience, not meaning he was passive, it means it's what he suffered, okay? So here's uh, Murray again, Christ's vicarious sin-bearing on behalf of the new humanity, again, a new race of people, included the Adamic sin as well as all other sins. So that applies to us. His, his, his role as a federal head over this new humanity applies to us if we're in Christ. Active obedience, Here's Murray again. The obedience Christ rendered fulfilled the obedience in which Adam failed. It would not be correct to say, however, that Christ's obedience was the same in content or demand. Listen to this. Christ was called on to obey in radically different conditions and required to fulfill radically different demands. Christ was sin bearer and the climactic demand was to die. This was not true of Adam. Christ came to redeem, not so Adam. So Christ rendered the whole souled totality obedience in which Adam failed, but under totally different conditions and with incomparably greater demands. End quote. Guys, how does that help you appreciate, this is not rhetorical, Wayne. Um, how, does this, how does that help you appreciate what Jesus has accomplished for you and for us all? How can you... How can you take that, whatever that appreciation is, and apply this and pass it on to your kids, to other people? Trustworthiness, confidence. <laughs> uh, I don't know what, maybe an adjective or a verb, but mm -hmm. Yeah, so having a confidence, having a, a confidence in, yeah, yeah, good. The word assurance. The word assurance comes to mind as a very, very strong, this confirmation that he has, he has come through and completed the test. I mean, we see the, te the temptation of Satan, you know, in Matthew 4, Luke 4. And you see him come through that, exhausting Satan. Think, of, think about us. Think about any of us. If Satan comes to us and tempts us, he puts a little bit of pressure on us. And depending on, depending on our nearness to God, or, you know, he breaks us pretty quickly. If we, don't, if we don't break with a little bit of pressure, if he brings more pressure, eventually we break, right? Christ never broke. His you could say like compare our humanity to a, maybe a broomstick handle, all right? You put enough pressure on that broomstick handle, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bend and break eventually. But his humanity, his broomstick handle, was lashed to a titanium bar of his divine nature. And so Satan pressed and pressed and pressed. And in his humanity, he felt all the pressure of the test. Because it was lashed to that unbreakable titanium, it never broke, never even bent. So Satan was exhausted. He put all the pressure he could in, his, in all of his power and all of his strength. He put pressure on Christ and never broke. He felt way more temptation than any one of us have ever felt. He felt the stress, the pressure of it, and never broke. So that sense of assurance that he is a true savior, that he accomplished salvation, gives us great confidence, great assurance, security in him. Wayne and then Chuck. Uh, 
I, I was actually answering your earlier question, so if you've moved on. Oh, well, I would also say, to, to me, it, it also underscores the importance that we have, especially as, as fathers uh, of, of kids. Um, they're surrounded by the temptation part. They, apart from us bringing them up in the Word, right? They never know about the tree of life. They're never going to understand God's character if we are not there actively presenting it <coughs> and the assurance of trusting Christ. Like, they are, we live now in a fallen world, and I, I could not imagine, uh, it, it, it is difficult to think about living in this world without Christ. Mm -hmm. Man, yeah, yeah we, we did, did, didn't we? We were ravaged at the time. Yeah, uh, Chuck. Yeah, because Christ fulfilled perfectly um, um, Adam's obedience. I mean, he 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 fulfilled that perfectly. Um, I just just go right to Hebrews in chapter four and the very end of that chapter. You gotta talk a little louder. Uh, the very end of chapter 4 in Hebrews. Chapter 4 in Hebrews. Yeah. So that whole passage mm -hmm. in the last three verses about since we have a high priest, mm -hmm. um, let us hold fast, let us then with confidence. Uh, he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's in every respect was tempted but without sin. We can draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's a, that's just I, I can't give thanks enough mm. that, that because of what Christ did that we can do this. Mm. Talking about assurance. And if we continue, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And then this, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. So... I, I love the point that Murray draws out there that Christ, <clears throat> his obedience was not in the same content and nature as Adam's. Adam's, he had obedience with regard to one particular thing. Don't eat of that tree. Christ entered into a world of sin and had all obedience to not only resist all the, he, he didn't enter into a world of God's, you know, unmitigated goodness. He entered into a world that was cursed and fallen filled with temptation, filled with a curse. And so he had all that to deal with. Plus, Adam was called to live. Christ was called to die. Two very different, uh, you know, roles and, and duties for the two federal heads to, to take on and observe. And it's fascinating to think about. I see your hand, Jack. Um, just a second. Um, it's fascinating to think about what Christ has accomplished for us and how how man, the manifold ways he obeyed in things both private and public, things seemingly small and seems things that are so great as well. And he was perfect, perfect. That has to be passed on to our families. That has to be, this has to be understood by our kids because like Wayne was saying, our kids enter into this world if we don't prepare them for the temptations that they're facing, if we don't prepare them for the world that is around them, by this kind of theology, man, we're just setting them out like lambs to the slaughter. 
We've got to help our families understand truth, set a bedrock, a foundation of truth for them so they can be guarded. We are liable, Murray says, to regard the Adamic administration as abstract, unrelated to our situation and practical interest, and so far removed from us that it has little or no relevance. If we're inclined to think so, it is because we do not have a biblically conditioned way of thinking. Like if you, if you make a judgment that, wow, why do we go through all this? It seems like irrelevant. Murray's saying, if you're inclined to think that way, it's because you don't have a biblically conditioned way of thinking. <laughs> it's his subtle way of rebuking you. That's about as strong as a scholar will do. But uh, the Adamic institution is intensely relevant if our thought is regulated by the biblical revel- revelation. It's true. The more biblically we think, the more we see the value in this, in understanding it, letting it set a framework for our thinking. He goes on to say, we are sinners and we come into the world as such. This situation demands explanation. It cannot stand as an empirical fact. It requires the question, why or how? It is the Adamic administration with all of its implications for racial solidarity that alone provides the answer. This is the biblical answer to the universality of sin and death. Think about that with regard to evangelizing your kids. Think about setting a foundation for your families and your kids to help them understand why is death universal? Why did death have to come into the world at all? Why, why, why? I mean, I get the most profound questions of anybody from kids because they don't have the wherewithal to, you know, kind of restrain their question. They just go to the why right away, right? Why, dad? Why, why, why? This takes us there. He ends this way by saying, we need salvation. How does salvation come to bear upon our need? Racial solidarity in Adam is the pattern according to which salvation is wrought and applied. By Adam, sin, condemnation, death. By Christ, righteousness, justification, life. A way of thinking that makes us aloof to solidarity with Adam makes us inhabil, that is, not fit, not qualified. And a way of thinking that makes us aloof to solidarity with Adam makes us not fit, not qualified to the solidarity by which salvation comes. Thus, the relevance of the Adamic administration to what is most basic on the one hand and most necessary on the other in our human situation. End quote. So, we're going to stop there. This is our brief survey of covenant, federal headship, and next time we're going to get into harmardiology. Um, Jack, you can come up and talk to me after, but uh, just for the sake of time, I want to let you guys go, so let's pray. Father, thank you so much for uh, helping us uh, think through these things, and I pray that uh, you'd help us to absorb as best we can uh, the things that you've provided for us uh, through through uh, covenant theologians, through, uh, through uh, John Murray, through others who have written on these, these topics and help us to think carefully. And I pray that our mind would be saturated with scripture. I, um, I, I do thank you for the help with uh, how theologians have helped us with inferences that help us to see the, the full orbed communion that you intended for us in Christ and how Uh, the nature of Adam's failure, the nature of how you set up the test for him, but also the nature of Christ's obedience. And what a great superior head of the human race that he is. We thank you so much for your grace that you have united us to Christ by the Spirit. 
We thank you for the word of God that is illuminating us and giving us uh, an understanding. Uh, we thank you for eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe. Because it was unbelief that led us out of the garden. It's belief that takes us right back in. And we thank you for the gift of faith, the gift of understanding. We pray that you would help us to use what we understand for your glory, uh, to elevate the name of Christ. And we do that starting with our own families. Uh, you give us um, a desire, a love for them that doesn't leave them in ignorance, but actually fills them with the knowledge of the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.